Children's Church dismisses, it would be a great opportunity to remind anybody and everybody that youth group does meet on Sunday evening starting at 5.15 with a meal to 7.30, so we would love to see the kiddos there. I know a lot of great things are happening in the youth ministry, and we have an opportunity to next week talk about that at our congregational meeting that Levi will be giving a little bit of what's been going on in the almost two months that he's been uh, in office uh, and then he will also talk about future plans as well. So, uh, like I said, a lot of great things happening there. A lot of great things we're looking forward to. This will also be a great time since uh, Reuben, buddy, I said happy birthday to you earlier. And so, happy birthday again. He's like, he's like yeah, there we go. He's like, I am so going to get that guy later on. He's, he's, he's not happy right now, probably, but happy birthday to him. History's biggest moments and most memorable events have all been centered on some sort of a cause or some sort of a belief or some sort of a conviction that someone had and that that person was willing to give everything for, even their own life if it was necessary. Think about it. Every major war, every inspirational speech, every life-shaping moment in the history of this world can be attributed to one person or a group of people standing up for what they believe in. Whether we may feel that foundational principle is right, wrong, or indifferent, somebody stood on something. Somebody stood up when it mattered the most. A more important question that we began to look at last week is really this, and I think this is a super important question that we often don't think about. We, we, we I believe, are people, and, and a lot of people, who have a lot of conviction. We want to stand on things that we believe in. But I think the bigger and the more important question is this. How in the world, as people who follow Christ in the world that we live in today, how do we do that in the right ways, at the right time, and for the right reasons? And sometimes we don't always think about those questions. We just kind of react and like, I know that I believe this, and so I'm just going to charge into that, and I'm going to stand up right now for what I believe in. Really also have to think about how we do that in the right ways, guys. Last week we talked about what it meant to stand out in this world that we live in by having a very firm grasp on our identity. Knowing who we are and knowing whose we are. And not letting anything change. I remember the story of Daniel we started with last week that Daniel and his three friends had their name changed. But Daniel refused as he wrote this book to say, I'm anybody but Daniel. God gave me that name and I'm going to keep that name and I'm going to live into that name. Today I want us to look at another stand that we have to make if we're going to swim against the cultural currents in our world. This morning, I want to continue looking at the person of Daniel. I want to look at his three friends to understand how we not only stand out in the world, but we stand out by standing up with integrity and purity in our life. And I just want to this morning, I usually kind of save the big idea for either the middle or kind of the end. We drive everything to that. I just want to give it to you right up front this morning. What the big idea that we're going to talk about this morning. Everything that we talk about this morning will flow from this idea. We stand out by standing up. Standing up on principles that we have in our lives that God has given to us. And when we do that, when we live a countercultural life, when we change the course of everything, that's what happens when we stand up. When we stand on principles that God has given to us, we absolutely haven't the ability to change everything. I don't mean that to be big talk. I could stand up here today and be like, guys, we could be like world changers. 
And some people do that. I'm not talking big. I'm not talking like maybe like one day fairy taleish. This could be, we could change the world. No, we, we can change the course of a culture and a community. Standing up can change the currents of our culture, but most importantly, it can change individual hearts and the collective whole all at the same time. That's really what it's about. When we think about changing something and we change the direction and we shift things, it's not about us being world beaters and world changers. It's about just simply changing one single heart at a time. That's what God wants us to work into and that's what he wants us to do. But here's the flip side of that truth. If it's true that we can transform things by knowing when to stand up and why we stand up and how we stand up at the right time and in the right ways and for the right reason, we also have to consider the dark side of that truth. And here is the really unfortunate and tragic truth. When we compromise on the things that are most important, we compromise on the wrong things in the wrong ways and at the wrong times, it can cost us way more and do much more damage than we can ever imagine. I was talking to my Sunday school class. I said, we have an innate ability as Christians sometimes to just do things in a really bad way. I mean, like the motive is there. Our intentions are really pure, I believe, but we just do things in a really, really bad way. Guys, we don't need to march up every single hill that we think we need to die on. We don't need to draw lines in the sand for every single thing that we think is so very important. In fact, I would really and truly say that you need to in your life say, what are the core things in my life that I'm going to say that's, that's it? And what we see really in the book of Daniel is that Daniel doesn't throw a fuss and a fit every time something goes on. Nope, not going to do that. Yeah, I can't do that. I'm protesting that. No way am I doing it. No, he doesn't do that at all. We're going to see that in his story today. So as we get started this morning, I want to ask just a few opening questions that I want you to consider, not only as we roll through the sermon today, but as we leave here today. In your life, what are the hills that you are willing to die on? Like, guys, let me, let me just, you can't have 20,000 of them. You can't have 20,000 hills. You can't have every moment of your day be a battle about everything. You are going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear everybody else out. Where are the areas that you're willing to draw a line in the sand and say no more? That's it. How many areas of your life do you have where major things are at stake and you are determined and you are resolved to not give in and not to compromise? Guys, my thought is this. If you don't have at least some areas of your life where you can say that you're going to put your foot down and you're going to say enough is enough, you are probably swimming a little too deeply in the currents of this culture. I mean, if you like really sit there this morning and just in a little bit of time as I'm reading those questions and you're like, I really don't know. I really don't know what is so important to me that I'm just going to go to battle for it and just going to fight tooth and nail for it. You're probably swimming a little too deeply in this culture. Likewise, the opposite is also true. If you find yourself dying on every single hill and drawing line after line and being so determined, being so resolved that you become inflexible and you become hard of heart, you're probably floating too far from the culture that you're not having any influence on the hearts and the minds of those that you're called to reach. Neither one of those are good, guys. You see those are, are polar opposites, but they're also extremes. We need to find where we're going to fit in in that. 
not being so loose and lax and not being so rigid and inflexible are things. But let's be really honest here, guys. In the world that we live in today, it does us no good to operate so far outside the scope of culture that we become irrelevant and we become detached from the very world that we're trying to reach. I shared with my Sunday school class, I've been reading a book this week called Good Faith. And the basic premise of the book, I wish I could just literally come up here and just like read page after page because it's just like, whoa. But the basic premise of the book is that we live in a world, and I don't think this is any surprise to us. If it's a surprise to you this morning what I'm about to say, then welcome out from underneath that rock that you've been living under. We live in a world that sees Christianity and Christians, people who, who are dedicated and devoted to following Christ as very irrelevant and extreme. In fact, those are the two words that the book uses over and over again. That if you were to go to ask any person who is not a Christ follower, the word that they would use more often than not, you would, they would say that, you, that Christians are extreme and that Christians are irrelevant. And I have everything to tell you this morning that there is no irrelevance to what we stand on as Christians. Not particularly good qualities, if you ask me, to be known for and about. There was one quote in particular in the book which really stuck with me this week after I read it, and it says this. It says, part of the problem is that too many in the Christian community have bought into the unbiblical notions about what it means to live a good life. So it doesn't look to the world that we're doing anything special or different or countercultural. And here's where we really need to focus into this quote. They said, rather than living a as, as a countercultural community that bears witness to the coming kingdom of God, many of us just simply go with the cultural flow. Thoughtlessly consuming products and ideas and pursuing aspirations that cause us to be camouflaged rather than strongly convicted. Ouch, right? I, I think, at least for me, I can like, look at my life and say, ooh, that's sometimes me. I think if we're really being honest with ourselves, a lot of us would say, that's sometimes me. I'm more camouflaged than I am convicted. In short, guys, we are not standing out as the church and as Christians because we are not standing up in the right times, in the right ways, for the right reasons. But, but what does that really look like? Again, it's easy for me to stand up here and say, guys, guess what? We need to stand up. We need to stand up on godly principles that we've been given. And almost everybody out there says, okay, so cool, what's that look like? How do we do that? How do we stay faithful to reaching a world that we have been sent into while also staying faithful to our most basic core beliefs and practices? What really struck me, this is totally bonus information, just struck my mind. What really struck me about this book is they had a little table in there and it said, what, what are the practices that Christians do that you seem most extreme and irrelevant to you? And it shocked me because almost everything that I read on that table are the things that we hold most dear and things that seem most basic to us. Like, people think it's really weird that we give our hard-earned money sacrificially back to God. We're like, some of us, we're like, that's second nature. I do that because of what Christ has done for me. But for a world that's looking on the outside, they're saying, that is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs that you do that. That's a weirdo. So just things like that that we think are so second nature, just weird to the rest of the world. How do we do that? Reach a world, stay faithful to our core convictions. And this is where we return to the story that we started looking at last week. Daniel chapter 1 is where we're at. We're going to start at verse 8 today. 
We'll look and continue looking at the story of four Hebrew teenagers who found themselves smack dab in the middle of a resistant, hostile, foreign culture where they had to ask those very same questions. I could just see Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah showing up and like, guys, what, what do we do? I mean, we are 14, 15 years old. How in the world are we ever going to stand up to Nebuchadnezzar, to this powerful kingdom that we are now under? How do we do that and stay faithful to our God? And lucky, luckily for us, they lay this story out in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel does it for us. And starting at verse 8, it says this. It says, Daniel was determined. It's a very important word. Also, another translation says Daniel was resolved. I love that word too. He was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to him by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. This is a striking verse to me. Verse 9. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. I really wonder sometimes if we could ask and, and see that very same thing in our lives. As we go around and we rub shoulders with people and we befriend people and we have a relationship with people, if people could really look at us and say, I have affection for you and I have respect and admiration for you. I may not agree with you, I may not fall in line with what you believe, but I really respect and I love you for who you are and what you stand for. What, that would be amazing if that happened in our lives. He has respect and affection, but he responded, I am afraid of the Lord my king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and you become thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Off with your head. And so verse 11 is also very interesting to me. It says, Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff. So usually what do we do, guys? Like, if we're mad at anything, like, just put yourself in a position. You are at the restaurant, they have messed up your order, and you cannot get through to the cashier that they've messed up your order. What do you ma magically say? I want to see the manager. The manager can't help you. I want to see the next person up. What does Daniel do? He doesn't go to the next person up. He goes to the next person down. It, it actually makes perfect sense. Why in the world would he appeal to a person, Ashpenaz, who has no connection really to Daniel? He would go to the person who has every bit of connection with Daniel, the chief who has been in charge of him, the attendant who has been in charge of Daniel and these three friends of his. And he says he speaks with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. Can I please just interject at this point? This story is not given to us to give us the Daniel plan or the Daniel diet. That is not the point of this story. That's cool if you want to eat vegetables and water and lose some weight and feel really great about yourself, but that is not the moral and the point of this story. All right? We're test. We're going for a test here, Daniel says. At the end of the ten days, you see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then you make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for ten days. This is like a miracle, by the way, guys. That a guy who has his job on the line, his life on the line, says, okay, let's go, let's go ahead and test it. Because he's not really necessarily connected straight to Nebuchadnezzar. So he has the latitude to be able to do this. And here's what happened in this test of faith, this extreme risk that they go through. At the end of the ten days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. In some translations, it actually said these four boys were more robust. 
You know what that means, guys, in our speak today? These guys were little chunkers, and it looked good. Like, because back in the day, things were opposite than they are in our world today. Back in that day in Babylon, do you know what it meant if you were pale and you were thin? It meant that you were poor because you had nothing to eat and you were not well off. You know what it meant if you had a little bit right here? Hey, okay, you're good. God is blessing you. Things are fine and wonderful. And so we have this interesting scenario that plays itself out. And and I'm really immediately, we should be immediately struck by the opening words of this entire section in verse 8. Daniel was, what's that word there? Resolved, it says, or in my translation, it says determined. Daniel was determined. That really is the key word of the entire story. We cannot just blow past that and keep motoring along and say, what's the rest of the story? Tell me the rest of it. No, it starts right there in verse 8. Daniel was determined determined. He was determined, he was resolved not to defile himself, not to pollute himself. In fact, translated, Daniel did not want to cheapen himself. I mean, like, I don't know, I've told you like a million times since I've been here in almost four years, I love to eat a lot. So I imagine myself, I'm like a Jewish boy, not only this, think about this. Any teenagers, do you have teenagers in the home? Like, they like to eat, don't they? But like, I don't even have teenagers. I have a seven-year-old and a ten-year-old. They like to eat. And eat, and eat, and eat, and eat. I just imagine I'm a 14, 15-year-old boy who has just rolled into Babylon, and I see things before me that I've never seen in my life before. Food before me that I've never seen in my life before. Do you think that I'm going to be like, you know what? Can't do that. God said so. Mm, I don't know. I know myself well enough to be like, oh, boy, that's looking really good right now. I want some of that. But Daniel is determined. The reason Daniel viewed this food and this drink as defiled is not immediately clear. I think sometimes we read this story, we're like, well, it's very obvious why Daniel did not eat this food. I I think we go for the obvious ones. I think we go for the easiest ones, and we miss the deeper truth in it. I mean, some people would say, well, it was, it, was, it was defiled because it was ritually unclean. It was, you know, the Jews had dietary restrictions. Some things are clean, some things are not clean. I don't think it's much of an assumption and a stretch to say that there was probably pork right in the middle of that table. I mean, like, not like nice pulled pork either. Like, that whole hog was right there sitting in front of him, apple in his mouth, everything that you've seen. That's, I don't think, I mean, that may be part of it. Yes, there were dietary laws and restrictions, but... Well, how do you explain the rest of the Jewish boys who were probably eating that very same food? How do you explain that there was nothing about the wine that would have been unclean to Israelites? So I really don't think that's the main reason he said no. Maybe it was some sort of a religious stance or a conviction. Maybe the food items were offered to false gods. Paul talks about that a lot in the New Testament. Do not eat food that's been offered to idols. It could have been that, but I don't think that's the only reason. Why? I don't think that's the biggest reason. I believe there is one overarching reason that Daniel and the three friends said, enough is enough. No. The hill that they were willing to die on. It's my feeling that this was much more symbolic, much more moral and ethical. And what I mean by that is that Daniel refused the food and the drink because by doing so, he was refusing to pledge loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. That's it. That's a deeper truth that we have to dig through all this other stuff to find. You see, in ancient Near Eastern culture, and especially in Babylon, when you ate food and shared food from someone's table, it signified that you were pledging allegiance to them, that you were loyal to them. 
And it was at this point of their integration, their assimilation into Babylonian culture that the four said, enough is enough. Line drawn in the sand, no more of it. That's the last straw. Old Testament scholar Dale Davis lends this explanation. I love how he says this. He says, Babylon was simply smothering Daniel and his friends. I mean, think of everything they faced to this point already when they've been brought into Babylon. Taken away from everything that they knew, taken away from their home, their family. They've been kidnapped, really, is what they've been done. Came in, said, this is what you're going to do. We're going to train you in all the ways of Babylon and all the literature and the wisdom of Babylon. And by the way, we're going to go ahead and take away your names, too, that were given to you by God that tell you everything about who you are. And we're going to give you such names as Satan's prince. I mean, that's a lot to take in in just a short amount of time. Babylon was simply smothering Daniel and his friends. Daniel may well have thought there is real danger here. I could get sucked into this and be changed by it all. And it's the last part that he says. He recognized that if Babylon, the world, and its values get into you, the show is over. Guys, it's no different for us today as people who follow Christ. If at any point we fall in love with the things of this world and the things of this world get into us and start to work outside of us, the show is over. We are in a very dangerous position. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were immersed into the worldview of pagan Babylon, but it would not win their hearts and their minds. They belonged exclusively to God. They were determined to stay devoted to God. It's, it's amazing to me. As you read that story and you think to yourself, man, I could have picked any one of those reasons to just start crying out and saying, nuh uh, not doing this. I'm going to protest. I'm going to be really, really obnoxious about this. I do. I read that story. I'm like, Daniel, why? I mean, especially when they change your name, dude. Why? Why don't you say anything? And then it comes to verse 8, and it says they did not want to eat the king's food. And you think, that's it? That, that's the battle that you're going to fight right now after all of that? And the reason was they said no more because we are not going to pledge our loyalty to anybody. But God, this is not the last time that they do this in the book of Daniel. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks. Guys, Babylon is where these four took up residence, but Babylon would not be their home. We need to see things in the very same way in our lives. Guess what? We are in this world. God has sent us into this world, but guess what? This is not where we live permanently. We have another home that we are going to. Daniel and the gang were forced to be in Babylon, but Babylon would not be forced into them. It's no different for us as people of God thousands of years later. We absolutely have to get ourselves into the world, but we don't ever have to let the world get into us. Do, do you notice how Daniel takes his stand here? This is so key to me. Not only the fact that he's determined and that he makes this stand, but it's how he does it. He doesn't do it with a protest. He doesn't do it violently. He doesn't do it rudely and obnoxiously. Look at the wording in verse 8 again. It says he was determined not to defile himself, and then it says here he's not going to eat the food, he's not going to eat the wine. And what does he do? It says he asked he asked for permission to the attendant or to the chief of staff first and then to the attendant like how odd is that to you like that he would say i mean can you imagine that i got hey hey michelle azariah guys we're not gonna eat this stuff and then he goes to them he says hey can i please ask you something i'm asking for permission on that's really weird that's really backward honestly from the way that a lot of us do things in our world today 
We don't ask for permission because guess what? We're Christ followers, and I don't have to ask for your permission. Do, do you see how, like, really just obnoxious that is? Do you see how there would be no attraction to listening to what we have to say when we act like that? That we are better than everybody else and we have some innate right and responsibility for you to give me everything that I deserve. Don't think that people who are Christians walk around like that. They do. And they are so very wrong to walk around like that. They don't ask permission. Can I? Can I not eat this and will do something else? Daniel was determined, but he was not demanding. That's the key here in his attitude. He asked the chief, of, uh, chief official for permission to try a different tactic in their nutritional regimen. Now, I believe it was because of Daniel's conviction, but I believe it more importantly is because of his considerate personality that we get movement and we get traction in the story. I mean, I don't think there really would have been much of a story if Daniel said, that's it, not doing it. I'm going to just, I am going to make a scene right here and right now I don't think there really would have been a rest of the story of Daniel. It would have been a very different story. But we get traction in the story because of his personality and the way that he approaches this situation. Daniel gained favor among those who had, had, should have been less than favorable towards him. There is no reason why this attendant would have said, all right, let's go with that. No reason at all. There should have been no favor in this situation towards Daniel and his friends. But Daniel is just one of many in Scripture who have an amazing knack to display wisdom and humility in the face of less than desirable circumstances. You remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 39, don't you? Joseph is thrown into prison. Like, it's not a desirable place for me. I can think of better places to be. But does Joseph say, I'm just going to sit in here and wait this out. Or he goes to the garden, he says, you know what, I don't really deserve to be here. All right. By the way, I was like second in command of all of Egypt, so he kind of let me out of here. Oh, by the way, too, like God has sent me here for a reason, so that should just be my golden ticket out of this place. What does he do? He puts his nose to the grindstones and says, I'm here, I'm going to make something of it. And it actually says that the person who is in charge of him in that dungeon does the very same thing that the attendant does for Daniel. Begins to have affection for him and to respect him. It says, actually, that chief of the dungeon puts Joseph in charge of everything. And everything starts to work itself out. He's blessed beyond measure because of Joseph's presence there. Do you remember the story of Esther? It says Esther is brought into the king's harem and she's given an attendant. His name's Haggai. And Haggai has affection and admiration and respect for Esther. It says when Esther goes to see the king, he is so pleased with Esther. And she doesn't do anything. It says actually in that story that the, the ladies who would go in the king's harem would spend an entire year in beauty preparations to go in there. Six months of being prepared in one sort of way and six months of being prepared with some other stuff. And it says when Esther goes in there, she doesn't take anything special, wonderful. She doesn't try to beauty herself up. She just goes in being herself. Standing on and standing up in what she is. And it says the king fell in love with her. So impressed with her. All three of those individuals and a lot more in Scripture practice what Proverbs 16 talks about. Proverbs 16, 7 simply says these words. When people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. Whoa, write that one down. Take it and just keep reading that one. When your life is pleasing to the Lord and your life is pure in the Lord, you're at peace even with your enemies. 
And here's what really needs to be recognized at this early stage of the story. This conviction, this determination, this resolve that Daniel and his three friends displayed has been built into them for years. It's years in the making. They don't just show them in Babylon and be like, you know what, guys? We're going to be people who just stand out and stand up. No, they've been practicing this for years. It sets the foundation for the courage and the boldness that they show throughout the early parts of the book of Daniel. They're only able to face the furnace or stand in the lion's den because of the decisions that they had made, because of the convictions that they kept at the early stages of their life, not only before they came to Babylon, but when they get into Babylon. Everything in the book of Daniel is built on this one story in chapter 1. They don't just magically show up and they face a fiery furnace and be like, you know what, we're going to be bold, we're going to be courageous. No, it starts right here in chapter 1. It actually starts before chapter 1 when they are still in Jerusalem and before they're deported and exiled. Let's not lose focus of the main point, the big truth that's staring us in the face, though. Daniel, along with his pack, stand up and they step out in faith with no guarantee that everything will work out. Again, verses 11 through 14, here's the test I want to run, he says to this attendant that's over them. There is absolutely no guarantee. There's no money back promise if things don't pan out, if the king is not satisfied with their health. Daniel has no assurance that his plan will succeed, but he does hold on to the greatest promise, not only that he has, but the greatest promise that we have as well. And it's this. You ready? Big truth I'm about to lay out. God's got this. Now, can you say that with me? God's got this. At any moment in life where we're like, oh, what do I do now? Like, I, I don't know. I'm, you're not going to probably show up in like the Babylonian Empire someday. Because guess what? It doesn't exist anymore. But like, we do live in a world where it's like, what in the world do I do? God's got this. He is in control of this entire situation. And because Daniel and his friends have that conviction, they have that determination, they stay loyal to God, God honors Daniel and his three friends. We see that's what this whole story is about. He honors them and he blesses them physically. They're more robust than anybody else that they bring to the king. He blesses them mentally and spiritually and socially. Guys, God always honors the conviction and commitment to stay obedient to his word and to trust him, that he is in control. Let me say this, though. That doesn't always mean that it's an easy path. It doesn't mean that everything is always a quick fix with quick answers. But staying determined to honor and to follow after God and his leading is the ultimate blessing that we could have in life. Preacher and New Testament professor Brian Chappell gets it right when he says this. Holiness, being set apart and standing out and standing up, is risky business. Society may seem to celebrate idealism, but it rarely tolerates the living out of those ideals that is so very true. Like, we are a society that's like, oh, that sounds really good. We should so pursue that. But as soon as we try to start pursuing those things, we get smashed into the ground. Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, said it this way, and this, guys, this is a power quote right here. Unless there is an element of extreme risk in our following God, there is no need for faith. Like, what? That'd be a great question to probably ask. Are there any moments, are there any parts of my life where I have to endure extreme risk? If not, you're probably not living a life that's very full of faith. 
Being distanced from their homeland and everything they knew, these four young teens refused to let any distance come between them and their God. Compromise was a word that was not in these boys' vocabulary when it came to their devotion towards God, and God honored that conviction and determination in a major way. But I don't want to leave this morning, I don't want any of you to leave this morning without noticing where Daniel's determination comes from. Guys, this, this right here is the payoff, it is the takeaway from this story this morning. And if you miss this, nothing else that I have said this morning is going to make much of a difference. And here it is. I believe, Daniel, I believe his three friends were determined in the moment because they had pre-decided what mattered most to them. This is the way I put it, and this may not make sense to you, but it makes sense in my mind. I I see it this way in my life. I I have to trace the lines in my life before I bold those lines in with Sharpie. I have to decide on some things in my life before I walk a path and get to something and say, this is it. This is the line that I draw right now in my life. Guys, if we don't pre-decide what we'll do in any given moment, if we haven't laid the groundwork for how we'll respond to certain situations and scenarios, if we are simply swimming with no real thought of how we're going to approach moments when they put us in very compromising situations, it leads us to more easily compromise our faith, to compromise our devotion to what matters most in our life. Guys, you know how it works, right? What often happens in any situation where there's a tension and there's a pull and there's a struggle for us to do and to go against what we know will ruin our witness? What happens when we wait until we're in the moment? We have a strong tendency to do some things. We tend to rationalize, right? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're like, well, I feel like I can do this because I, like, I won't do it again. What if Daniel said, you know, I'm just going to like... I'm going to get on the table right now. I'm just going to take a big old bite of that pig right in front of me because I know that I won't do it again. One time. One time is all I have to do. I have to get this out of me. We do the very same thing in our lives. We rationalize. And we justify. Well, you know what? Like, it wasn't really that bad, was it? And we cave in. Guys, that's not to say that we are immune from doing some really dumb things when we pre-decide. But we certainly set ourselves up for greater success and the ability to stand up when we say, you know what, I'm going to predetermine to do some things in my life. Maybe the best thing that you could do today is to think about things that you are going to predecide or predetermine in your life. And here's what happens when you make those choices and you predecide your steps, you trace those lines first. Guys, predetermination, predeciding things leads to purity in all things. Most importantly, predetermining locks us into giving our soul devotion to God. Can I, can I be really forward this morning? Some of you may not like this, may not like to hear this. This is going to be a moment where I, I'm going to step on your toes. I'm probably going to kick you in the shin as well. And I might do something else, I'm not really sure. But you see how this comes out at you, guys. If you are never ever standing out by standing up and you're always just blending in and going with the flow, you are not fully following Christ. I just kicked myself in the shin. Ouch, that hurt. I just punched myself in the gut. Guys, here's the thing. It is impossible. No way that you can do this. It's impossible to be a sort of Christian. Like, are you a Christian? Eh, I'm kind of a Christian, I guess if you would say. Kind of sort of a Christian what some people have termed a cultural Christian. 
Guys, you can't be a sort of Christian and have any sort of spiritual success or influence in this world against the darkness and the lures of this world. It's impossible for us to stand up by sort of being in. It's impossible for us to stand up for what we really believe in when we're kind of devoted to God and His ways. It just will not work. Guys, it's like you going to work out one time of a year and you say, you know what, look at me. I'm like, I'm physically fit, right? One time. It's like you telling your family and you telling your spouse, I love you, one time a year, and you say, hey, guess what? I'm really relationally fit now, right? It's like you thinking that you can just squeeze an hour of, or, or two of church into your life and feel real, like, you know what, God? Look at me. I sit in here and listen to this guy forever drone on and on. Don't you, don't you think I'm so impressive, God? To go and squeeze that hour or two church in with no need for bothersome continued growth and pursuit of God throughout the week, and that will cause me to really grow and really thrive. How goofy does that sound, by the way? If it sounds like nonsense, what does it sound like, or what do we think it looks like when we live as a half-Christian in this world? Somewhat devoted, somewhat convicted, somewhat determined. Guys, it's quite literally an oxymoron. There is no such thing as a partial disciple. Like Jesus shows up to the 12 guys. He shows up actually to just break it down. Peter and Andrew and James and John, they're fishing. And they're like, hey, follow me. And they're like, you know, like next week. How about next week you try to come back and we'll do this thing. Like I, I kind of, I, I want to be with you, but I also have this stuff going on over here. That's a, it doesn't work, guys. It doesn't happen impossible to stand out and stand up when we're standing on nothing and sometimes you have to draw a line sometimes you have to take a stand against worldly influences and the main influencer himself satan and if you are never standing out by standing up you are just blending in ephesians chapter 6 i want to read that scripture this morning and end with this scripture it's such a powerful one that speaks to what we've been talking about all morning Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10, is going to sound very familiar to a lot of us. It is the armor of God, right? We do a lot of cool and cute little kids' lessons on this, but this is a powerful part of Scripture. Paul comes to the end of it, and he says, A final word, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Not our own power, not that you think we're really great, not think, hey, you know what, I can resist this because I'm so awesome and I'm so strong. No, be strong in the Lord. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. And we skip down to verse 13. Therefore, I want you to put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will still be standing firm again twice and then he the very first part of verse 14 says what stand your ground three times that he says that it doesn't sound like blending into me just going with the flow just being kind of a disciple kind of a follower of christ a sort of christian Guys, let me ask this. Would, would you rather have God remembered and honored because you chose to stand up for the right things and the right reasons at the right time? Or would you rather live a life, and I don't think this is anybody, would you rather have God forgotten and dishonored because you chose to play it safe and just blend in? Guys, may we always choose to stand up to competing influences by standing on godly principles because there is simply too much at stake for this world. 
There are too many lives that are at stake for us to just simply go with the flow. I don't know what it is for you. Like I said, I hope that for the rest of the day that you have today and the rest of this week, you really think in your life, what am I going to predetermine? What's going to become most important to me in my life that I am going to stand my ground on in a right way, not an obnoxious way? I don't want to stand for God. And people will see that, and they will be compelled to that, they will be attracted to that, and they will respect that. And I believe that as we do that little by little, one heart is changed, then two hearts are changed, and then multiple hearts are changed. And guess what's happening this entire time is just individual hearts are being changed. Their hearts are also changing other individual hearts. Do you see what happens? This is not silly and stupid and fairy tale-ish. This is real. Daniel not only did it, but Jesus did it with 12 bozo clowns. I mean, I like, I'd like to think that I'm, this seems really arrogant, but I'd like to think that I'm better than 12 bozo clowns. I'm really not, but like, surely if 12 bozo clowns can change the entire world, we can just go out into a community and do a little bit of that ourselves, right? Right? right. Oh, thank you very much. Somebody, one person's with me. I love it. Let's pray, guys.